Section 16 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Section 16. President Theodore Roosevelt, December 5, 1905, Part 2. The Department of Commerce and Labor should also make a thorough investigation of the conditions of women in industry. Over five million American women are now engaged in gainful occupations, yet there is an almost complete dearth of data upon which to base any trustworthy conclusions as regards a subject as important as it is vast and complicated. There is need of full knowledge on which to base action looking toward state and municipal legislation for the protection of working women. The introduction of women into industry is working change and disturbance in the domestic and social life of the nation. The decrease in marriage, and especially in the birth rate, has been coincident with it. We must face accomplished facts and the adjustment of factory conditions must be made, but surely it can be made with less friction and less harmful effects on family life than is now the case. This whole matter in reality forms one of the greatest sociological phenomena of our time. It is a social question of the first importance, of far greater importance than any merely political or economic question can be, and to solve it, we need ample data, gathered in a sane and scientific spirit in the course of an exhaustive investigation. In any great labor disturbance, not only our employer and employee interested, but a third party, the general public. Every considerable labor difficulty in which interstate commerce is involved should be investigated by the government and the facts officially reported to the public. The question of securing a healthy, self-respecting, and mutually sympathetic attitude as between employer and employee, capitalist and wage worker, is a difficult one. All phases of the labor problem prove difficult when approached, but the underlying principles, the root principles, in accordance with which the problem must be solved are entirely simple. We can get justice and right dealing only if we put as of paramount importance the principle of treating a man on his worth as a man, rather than with reference to his social position, his occupation, or the class to which he belongs. There are selfish and brutal men in all ranks of life. If they are capitalists, their selfishness and brutality may take the form of hard indifference to suffering, greedy disregard of every moral restraint which interferes with the accumulation of wealth, and cold-blooded exploitation of the weak. Or, if they are laborers, the form of laziness, of sullen envy of the more fortunate, and of willingness to perform deeds of murderous violence. Such conduct is just as reprehensible in one case as in the other, 
and all honest and far-seeing men should join in warring against it wherever it becomes manifest. Individual capitalist and individual wage worker, corporation and union, are alike entitled to the protection of the law and must alike obey the law. Moreover, in addition to mere obedience to the law, each man, if he be really a good citizen, must show broad sympathy for his neighbor and genuine desire to look at any question arising between them from the standpoint of that neighbor no less than from his own. And to this end, it is essential that capitalist and wage worker should consult freely one with the other, should each strive to bring closer the day when both shall realize that they are properly partners and not enemies. To approach the questions which inevitably arise between them solely from the standpoint which treats each side in the mass as the enemy of the other side in the mass is both wicked and foolish. In the past, the most direful among the influences which have brought about the downfall of republics has ever been the growth of the class spirit, the growth of the spirit which tends to make a man subordinate the welfare of the public as a whole to the welfare of the particular class to which he belongs, the substitution of loyalty to a class for loyalty to the nation. This inevitably brings about a tendency to treat each man not on his merits as an individual, but on his position as belonging to a certain class in the community. If such a spirit grows up in this republic, it will ultimately prove fatal to us, as in the past it has proved fatal to every community in which it has become dominant. Unless we continue to keep a quick and lively sense of the great fundamental truth that our concern is with the individual worth of the individual man, this government cannot permanently hold the place which it has achieved among the nations. The vital lines of cleavage among our people do not correspond, and indeed run at right angles to, the lines of cleavage which divide occupation from occupation, which divide wage workers from capitalists, farmers from bankers, men of small means from men of large means, men who live in the towns from men who live in the country. For the vital line of cleavage is the line which divides the honest man who tries to do well by his neighbor from the dishonest man who does ill by his neighbor. In other words, the standard we should establish is the standard of conduct, not the standard of occupation, of means, or of social position. It is the man's moral quality, his attitude toward the great questions which concern all humanity, his cleanliness of life, his power to do his duty toward himself and toward others, which really count. And if we substitute for the standard of personal judgment which treats each man according to his merits, another standard in accordance with which all men of one class are favored and all men of another class discriminated against, we shall do irreparable damage to the body politic. 
I believe that our people are too sane, too self-respecting, too fit for self-government ever to adopt such an attitude. This government is not, and never shall be, government by a plutocracy. This government is not, and never shall be, government by a mob. It shall continue to be, in the future, what it has been in the past, a government based on the theory that each man, rich or poor, is to be treated simply and solely on his worth as a man, that all his personal and property rights are to be safeguarded, and that he is neither to wrong others nor to suffer wrong from others. The noblest of all forms of government is self-government, but it is also the most difficult. We who possess this priceless boon and who desire to hand it on to our children and our children's children should ever bear in mind the thought so finely expressed by Burke. Quote, Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites, in proportion as they are disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and good in preference to the flattery of knaves. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere and the less of it there be within the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters." Unquote. The great insurance companies afford striking examples of corporations whose business has extended so far beyond the jurisdiction of the states which created them as to preclude strict enforcement of supervision and regulation by the parent states. In my last annual message, I recommended, quote, that the Congress carefully consider whether the power of the Bureau of Corporations cannot constitutionally be extended to cover interstate transactions in insurance, unquote. Recent events have emphasized the importance of an early and exhaustive consideration of this question, to see whether it is not possible to furnish better safeguards than the several states have been able to furnish against corruption of the flagrant kind which has been exposed. It has been only too clearly shown that certain of the men at the head of these large corporations take but small note of the ethical distinction between honesty and dishonesty. They draw the line only this side of what may be called law honesty, the kind of honesty necessary in order to avoid falling into the clutches of the law. Of course, the only complete remedy for this condition must be found in an aroused public conscience, a higher sense of ethical conduct in the community at large, and especially among businessmen and in the great profession of the law and in the growth of a spirit which condemns all dishonesty, whether in rich man or in poor man, whether it takes the shape of bribery or of blackmail. But much can be done by legislation which is not only drastic but practical. There is need of a far stricter and more uniform regulation of the vast insurance interests of this country. 
The United States should, in this respect, follow the policy of other nations by providing adequate national supervision of commercial interests which are clearly national in character. My predecessors have repeatedly recognized that the foreign business of these companies is an important part of our foreign commercial relations. During the administrations of Presidents Cleveland, Harrison, and McKinley, the State Department exercised its influence through diplomatic channels to prevent unjust discrimination by foreign countries against American insurance companies. These negotiations illustrated the propriety of the Congress recognizing the national character of insurance, for in the absence of federal legislation, the State Department could only give expression to the wishes of the authorities of the several states whose policy was ineffective through want of uniformity. I repeat my previous recommendation that the Congress should also consider whether the federal government has any power or owes any duty with respect to domestic transactions in insurance of an interstate character. That state supervision has proved inadequate is generally conceded. The burden upon insurance companies, and therefore their policyholders, of conflicting regulations of many states is unquestioned. While but little effective check is imposed upon any able and unscrupulous man who desires to exploit the company in his own interest at the expense of the policyholders and of the public. The inability of a state to regulate effectively insurance corporations created under the laws of other states and transacting the larger part of their business elsewhere is also clear. As a remedy for this evil of conflicting, ineffective, and yet burdensome regulations, there has been for many years a widespread demand for federal supervision. The Congress has already recognized that interstate insurance may be a proper subject for federal legislation, for in creating the Bureau of Corporations, it authorized it to publish and supply useful information concerning interstate corporations, quote, including corporations engaged in insurance, unquote. It is obvious that if the compilation of statistics be the limit of the federal power, it is wholly ineffective to regulate this form of commercial intercourse between the states, and as the insurance business has outgrown in magnitude the possibility of adequate state supervision, the Congress should carefully consider whether further legislation can be bad. What is said above applies with equal force to fraternal and benevolent organizations which contract for life insurance. There is more need of stability than of the attempt to attain an ideal perfection in the methods of raising revenue, and the shock and strain to the business world certain to attend any serious change in these methods renders such change inadvisable unless for grave reasons. It is not possible to lay down any general rule by which to determine the moment when the reasons for will outweigh the reasons against such a change. 
Much must depend not merely on the needs, but on the desires of the people as a whole, for needs and desires are not necessarily identical. Of course, no change can be made on lines beneficial to or desired by one section or one state only. There must be something like a general agreement among the citizens of the several states, as represented in the Congress, that the change is needed and desired in the interest of the people as a whole, and there should then be a sincere, intelligent, and disinterested effort to make it in such shape as will combine, so far as possible, the maximum of good to the people at large with the minimum of necessary disregard for the special interests of localities or classes. But in time of peace, the revenue must, on the average, taking a series of years together, equal the expenditures, or else the revenues must be increased. Last year, there was a deficit. Unless our expenditures can be kept within the revenues, then our revenue laws must be readjusted. It is as yet too early to attempt to outline what shape such a readjustment should take for it is as yet too early to say whether there will be need for it. It should be considered whether it is not desirable that the tariff laws should provide for applying as against or in favor of any other nation maximum and minimum tariff rates established by the Congress, so as to secure a certain reciprocity of treatment between other nations and ourselves having in view even larger considerations of policy than those of a purely economic nature, it would, in my judgment, be well to endeavor to bring about closer commercial connections with the other peoples of this continent. I am happy to be able to announce to you that Russia now treats us on the most favored nation basis. I earnestly recommend to Congress the need of economy, and to this end of a rigid scrutiny of appropriations. As examples merely, I call your attention to one or two specific matters. All unnecessary offices should be abolished. The Commissioner of the General Land Office recommends the abolishment of the Office of Receiver of Public Monies for the United States Land Office. This will affect a saving of about a quarter of a million dollars a year. As the business of the nation grows, it is inevitable that there should be from time to time a legitimate increase in the number of officials. And this fact renders it all the more important that when offices become unnecessary, they should be abolished. In the public printing, also, a large saving of public money can be made. There is a constantly growing tendency to publish masses of unimportant information. It is probably not unfair to say that many tens of thousands of volumes are published at which no human being ever looks and for which there is no real demand whatever. Yet, in speaking of economy, I must in no wise be understood as advocating the false economy, which is in the end the worst extravagance. 
to cut down on the Navy, for instance, would be a crime against the nation. To fail to push forward all work on the Panama Canal would be as great a folly. In my message of December 2, 1902, to the Congress, I said, quote, Interest rates are a potent factor in business activity, and in order that these rates may be equalized to meet the varying needs of the seasons and of widely separated communities, and to prevent the recurrence of financial stringencies, which injuriously affect legitimate business, it is necessary that there should be an element of elasticity in our monetary system. Banks are the natural servants of commerce, and upon them should be placed, as far as practicable, the burden of furnishing and maintaining a circulation adequate to supply the needs of our diversified industries and of our domestic and foreign commerce. And the issue of this should be so regulated that a sufficient supply should be always available for the business interests of the country." Unquote. Every consideration of prudence demands the addition of the element of elasticity to our currency system. The evil does not consist in an inadequate volume of money, but in the rigidity of this volume, which does not respond as it should to the varying needs of communities and of seasons. Inflation must be avoided but some provision should be made that will ensure a larger volume of money during the fall and winter months than in the less active seasons of the year, so that the currency will contract against speculation and will expand for the needs of legitimate business. At present, the Treasury Department is at irregularly recurring intervals obliged, in the interest of the business world, that is, in the interests of the American public, to try to avert financial crises by providing a remedy which should be provided by congressional action. At various times, I have instituted investigations into the organization and conduct of the business of the executive departments. While none of these inquiries have yet progressed far enough to warrant final conclusions, they have already confirmed and emphasized the general impression that the organization of the departments is often faulty in principle and wasteful in results, while many of their business methods are antiquated and inefficient. There is every reason why our executive governmental machinery should be at least as well-planned, economical, and efficient as the best machinery of the great business organizations, which at present is not the case. To make it so is a task of complex detail and essentially executive in its nature. Probably no legislative body, no matter how wise and able, could undertake it with reasonable prospect of success. I recommend that the Congress consider this subject with a view to provide by legislation for the transfer, distribution, consolidation, and assignment of duties and executive organizations or parts of organizations, and for the changes in business methods within or between the several departments, 
that will best promote the economy, efficiency, and high character of the government work. In my last annual message, I said, quote, The power of the government to protect the integrity of the elections of its own officials is inherent and has been recognized and affirmed by repeated declarations of the Supreme Court. There is no enemy of free government more dangerous and none so insidious as the corruption of the electorate. No one defends or excuses corruption, and it would seem to follow that none would oppose vigorous measures to eradicate it. I recommend the enactment of a law directed against bribery and corruption in federal elections. The details of such a law may be safely left to the wise discretion of the Congress, but it should go as far as under the Constitution it is possible to go, and should include severe penalties against him who gives or receives a bribe intended to influence his act or opinion as an elector and provisions for the publication not only of the expenditures for nominations and elections of all candidates, but also of all contributions received and expenditures made by political committees, unquote. I desire to repeat this recommendation. In political campaigns in a country as large and populous as ours, it is inevitable that there should be much expense of an entirely legitimate kind. This, of course, means that many contributions, and some of them of large size, must be made, and as a matter of fact, in any big political contest, such contributions are always made to both sides. It is entirely proper both to give and receive them, unless there is an improper motive connected with either gift or reception. If they are extorted by any kind of pressure or promise, express or implied, direct or indirect, in the way of favor or immunity, then the giving or receiving becomes not only improper but criminal. It will undoubtedly be difficult, as a matter of practical detail, to shape an act which shall guard with reasonable certainty against such misconduct. But if it is possible to secure by law the full and verified publication in detail of all the sums contributed to and expended by the candidates or committees of any political parties, the result cannot but be wholesome. All contributions by corporations to any political committee or for any political purpose should be forbidden by law. Directors should not be permitted to use stockholders' money for such purposes. And moreover, a prohibition of this kind would be, as far as it went, an effective method of stopping the evils aimed at in Corrupt Practices Act. Not only should both the national and the several state legislatures forbid any officer of a corporation from using the money of the corporation in or about any election, but they should also forbid such use of money in connection with any legislation, save by the employment of counsel in public manner for distinctly legal services.
The first Conference of Nations held at The Hague in 1899, being unable to dispose of all the business before it, recommended the consideration and settlement of a number of important questions by another conference to be called subsequently and at an early date. These questions were the following. 1. The rights and duties of neutrals. 2. The limitation of the armed forces on land and sea and of military budgets. 3. The use of new types and calibers of military and naval guns. 4. The inviolability of private property at sea in times of war. 5. The bombardment of ports, cities, and villages by naval forces. In October 1904, at the instance of the Interparliamentary Union, which, at a conference held in the United States and attended by the lawmakers of 15 different nations, had reiterated the demand for a second Conference of Nations, I issued invitations to all the powers signatory to the Hague Convention to send delegates to such a conference and suggested that it be again held at the Hague. In its note of December 16, 1904, the United States government communicated to the representatives of foreign governments its belief that the conference could be best arranged under the provisions of the present Hague Treaty. From all the powers, acceptance was received, coupled in some cases with the condition that we should wait until the end of the war then raging between Russia and Japan. The Emperor of Russia, immediately after the Treaty of Peace, which so happily terminated this war, in a note presented to the President on September 13th through Ambassador Rosen, took the initiative in recommending that the conference be now called. The United States government, in response, expressed its cordial acquiescence and stated that it would, as a matter of course, take part in the new conference and endeavor to further its aims. We assume that all civilized governments will support the movement and that the conference is now an assured fact. This government will do everything in its power to secure the success of the conference to the end that substantial progress may be made in the cause of international peace, justice, and goodwill. This renders it proper at this time to say something as to the general attitude of this government toward peace. More and more, war is coming to be looked upon as in itself a lamentable and evil thing, a wanton or useless war, or a war of mere aggression, in short, any war begun or carried on in a conscienceless spirit is to be condemned as a peculiarly atrocious crime against all humanity. We can, however, do nothing of permanent value for peace unless we keep ever clearly in mind the ethical element which lies at the root of the problem. Our aim is righteousness. Peace is normally the handmaiden of righteousness. But when peace and righteousness conflict, then a great and upright people can never for a moment hesitate to follow the path which leads toward righteousness, even though that path also leads to war. 
There are persons who advocate peace at any price. There are others who, following a false analogy, think that because it is no longer necessary in civilized countries for individuals to protect their rights with a strong hand, it is therefore unnecessary for nations to be ready to defend their rights. These persons would do irreparable harm to any nation that adopted their principles, and even as it is, they seriously hamper the cause which they advocate by tending to render it absurd in the eyes of sensible and patriotic men. There can be no worse foe of mankind in general, and of his own country in particular, than the demagogue of war, the man who in mere folly or to serve his own selfish ends continually rails at and abuses other nations, who seeks to excite his countrymen against foreigners on insufficient pretexts, who excites and inflames a perverse and aggressive national vanity, and who may, on occasions, wantonly bring on conflict between his nation and some other nation. But there are demagogues of peace just as there are demagogues of war, and in any such movement as this for the Hague Conference, it is essential not to be misled by one set of extremists any more than by the other. Whenever it is possible for a nation or an individual to work for real peace, Assuredly, it is failure of duty not so to strive. But if war is necessary and righteous, then either the man or the nation shrinking from it forfeits all title to self-respect. We have scant sympathy with the sentimentalist who dreads oppression less than physical suffering, who would prefer a shameful peace to the pain and toil sometimes lamentably necessary in order to secure a righteous peace. As yet, there is only a partial and imperfect analogy between international law and internal or municipal law, because there is no sanction of force for executing the former, while there is in the case of the latter. The private citizen is protected in his rights by the law because the law rests in the last resort upon force exercised through the forms of law. A man does not have to defend his rights with his own hand because he can call upon the police, upon the sheriff's posse, upon the militia, or in certain extreme cases upon the army to defend him. But there is no such sanction of force for international law. At present, there could be no greater calamity than for the free peoples, the enlightened, independent, and peace-loving peoples, to disarm, while yet leaving it open to any barbarism or despotism to remain armed. So long as the world is as unorganized as now, the armies and navies of those peoples who on the whole stand for justice offer not only the best, but the only possible security for a just peace. For instance, if the United States alone, or in company only with the other nations that on the whole tend to act justly, disarmed, we might sometimes avoid bloodshed. 
but we would cease to be of weight in securing the peace of justice, the real peace for which the most law-abiding and high-minded men must at times be willing to fight. As the world is now, only that nation is equipped for peace that knows how to fight, and that will not shrink from fighting if ever the conditions become such that war is demanded in the name of the highest morality. So much it is emphatically necessary to say, in order both that the position of the United States may not be misunderstood, and that a genuine effort to bring nearer the day of the peace of justice among the nations may not be hampered by a folly which, in striving to achieve the impossible, would render it hopeless to attempt the achievement of the practical. But while recognizing most clearly all above set forth, it remains our clear duty to strive in every practicable way to bring nearer the time when the sword shall not be the arbiter among nations. At present, the practical thing to do is to try to minimize the number of cases in which it must be the arbiter, and to offer, at least to all civilized powers, some substitute for war which will be available in at least a considerable number of instances. Very much can be done through another Hague conference in this direction, and I most earnestly urge that this nation do all in its power to try to further the movement and to make the result of the decisions of the Hague Conference effective. I earnestly hope that the conference may be able to devise some way to make arbitration between nations the customary way of settling international disputes in all save a few classes of cases, which should themselves be as sharply defined and rigidly limited as the present governmental and social development of the world will permit. If possible, there should be a general arbitration treaty negotiated among all the nations represented at the conference. Neutral rights and property should be protected at sea as they are protected on land. There should be an international agreement to this purpose, and a similar agreement defining contraband of war. During the last century, there has been a distinct diminution in the number of wars between the most civilized nations. International relations have become closer, and the development of the Hague Tribunal is not only a symptom of this growing closeness of relationship, but is a means by which the growth can be furthered, our aim should be from time to time to take such steps as may be possible toward creating something like an organization of the civilized nations. Because as the world becomes more highly organized, the need for navies and armies will diminish. It is not possible to secure anything like an immediate disarmament, because it would first be necessary to settle what peoples are on the whole a menace to the rest of mankind, and to provide against the disarmament of the rest being turned into a movement which would really chiefly benefit these obnoxious peoples. 
but it may be possible to exercise some check upon the tendency to swell indefinitely the budgets for military expenditure. Of course, such an effort could succeed only if it did not attempt to do too much, and if it were undertaken in a spirit of sanity as far removed as possible from a mere hysterical pseudo-philanthropy. It is worthwhile pointing out that since the end of the insurrection in the Philippines, this nation has shown its practical faith in the policy of disarmament by reducing its little army one-third. But disarmament can never be of prime importance. There is more need to get rid of the causes of war than of the implements of war. I have dwelt much on the dangers to be avoided by steering clear of any mere foolish sentimentality, because my wish for peace is so genuine and earnest, because I have a real and great desire that this second Hague Conference may mark a long stride forward in the direction of securing the peace of justice throughout the world. No object is better worthy the attention of enlightened statesmanship than the establishment of a surer method than now exists of securing justice as between nations, both for the protection of the little nations and for the prevention of war between the big nations. To this aim, we should endeavor not only to avert bloodshed, but above all, effectively to strengthen the forces of right. The golden rule should be and as the world grows in morality, it will be the guiding rule of conduct among nations as among individuals. Though the golden rule must not be construed in fantastic manner as forbidding the exercise of the police power, this mighty and free republic should ever deal with all other states, great or small, on the basis of high honor, respecting their rights as jealously as it safeguards its own. End of section 16